0: Hope you have your Bibles with you. Can you open them up to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. If you are visiting our church or you are recently coming to our church, um, one of the things that I want you to know is that we are a church that always preaches from God's Word. And so we've got some Bibles in the pew in front of you. Hebrews is not really that difficult of a book to find if you're not familiar with the Bible. Just go all the way to the right to Revelation, and then back up a few books. You're going to find Hebrews pretty quickly. Can everybody get that open? If you use your phone or a tablet, that's fine. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at two verses, verses 5 and 6. And this is part of the God With Us Emmanuel series. Now, you know if you were here last week, and if you weren't here last week, you haven't heard that message, I would not really encourage you to get online Listen to that message or read my notes. They're all on there. It's a lot quicker to read them. But listen to that message if you would. Uh, We really want to get you understanding why are we preaching a series called Emmanuel. It means God is with us. Why is that such an incredible truth? And these messages are meant to actually come around the subject of Christmas and then head straight into Jesus Christ, because we're going to be looking today at a subject of money. And you'll wonder, well, what's he going to talk about? How many gifts we buy? I'm not even going to mention that. I'm not really talking about money uh, by way of Christmas season money. I'm talking about how Emmanuel, the truth that God is with us, can root out of our hearts a love of money. This is the This is one example of the implications that Emmanuel has, the power of it in our lives. So let's get right to it. I've been a pastor and been in ministry for almost three decades. I've heard a lot of people confess their sins to me, sins of adultery, sins of lying, pornography, stealing, homosexuality, anger. I've heard a lot. I think I've heard, I don't know, maybe... If I haven't heard everything, I've heard most everything. But one of the things I have never heard anybody in all the years, not to my memory at least, in all the almost 30 years I've been a pastor, is the sin of covetousness. I've never heard anybody tell me, Tim, I'm really struggling with the sin of coveting. Except for one person. And that person's a very dear friend of mine. And God has not yet released that person from this hold yet. We're praying and praying that God will. But almost nobody talks about the sin of covetousness. And is it because it's an antiquated sin? Is it out of vogue in the modern world? And if it's not, if it's not out of vogue, if it's really a sin that still is prevalent, then how do we know if we are struggling with it and how do we deal with it? That's really the purpose of the first half of this message. So turn with me if you haven't yet to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. We're going to give the answers to some of those questions and then we're going to see what Emmanuel has to do with that powerful, powerful sin. One that I think probably a great many Americans especially deal with. By the way, If you're thinking, because I just made that comment, that this is a sin that is unique to Americans or Western countries, I will tell you that there was a family in Kenya, in Africa, in a small village that somehow got the money together to get a tin roof. Actually, I'm sorry, it was an aluminum roof put onto the home. Nobody in that village had an aluminum roof. They all had thatch roofs. He got an aluminum roof. And then all of a sudden, person after person in that little village started finding somehow the financing and going into debt to get their own aluminum roof. Why? Because of what we're talking about today. This is deeply, deeply rooted, and I'm going to explain why through the course of this message. Let me teach you a couple things. One of them is this, the command for contentment is in every Christian, for every Christian. Look at verse 13, verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Now if you're reading from the King James Version, let me just say that I'm sorry you haven't discovered a more modern Bible translation. The KJV, King James Version says here, let your conversation be without covetousness. What does that mean? That's an old English word, conversation, it actually means it meant at least in the beginning a way of life or a behavior. That's what that word conversation used to mean, it doesn't anymore. So you fast forward to a more recent translation and we've got this, keep your life free from money. In other words, live In such a way that there is no love of money in your heart. Now let's stop right there because you know what? It's so easy. I've sat under so much preaching. It is so easy to put your mind on autopilot. Neutral. Let the pastor carry you through the message. That is just really unhelpful. Please don't do that. I really want you to interact with every message I ever give. Disagree sometimes. Debate. Question. Agree if you want. But at least think on it. I want us to be a thinking church. So I'm going to ask you to think. Let's click it into gear. Let's shift it into gear, our minds. And let me ask you by way of a question. That's how you shift it into gear. Do you have a problem with a love of money? Now be really honest because you're not raising your hands. You're not to come up and confess that to me tonight or tomorrow or this week. You can if you want, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm just asking you to be honest. Do you have a love of money? I'm, I have to answer that question too. Do I have a love of money? It's really not helpful to just stay on the surface of your life and just go, no, nah, I don't have a problem with this. Meanwhile, there's a universe of unexplored territory in your heart that is piping hot with a love of money, Possibly. Do you have a love of money problem? How can you even know that? How can you know that if, if, there, rather, if there is a love of money in your heart? Now before we answer that question, we should probably understand what it means when the Bible says a love of money. Piper, John Piper, he suggests the heart that loves money is one that pins its hope confidence happiness and what this world's resources can offer so now he's expanded it and now you need to understand that when the bible talks about a love of money it's really not talking about a love of cold harsh hard cash it's not currency really it's a it's a general description for the things of this world so it really could better say Keep your life free from a love of the things of the world. That's really what we're talking about. That's what the writer of Hebrews means. A love of money far exceeds the actual dollar amount of your savings. It extends into a worship and a trust for the things of this world. That they will make you happy. That they will make you satisfied and beautiful or famous and secure. To love money is to have faith... Well, now now you're in worship territory because that's what you do when you worship. You trust and you have faith in your God. To love money is to have faith, not in God, but the things of this world that they can give you peace and security and happiness. So let me offer, I think maybe just helpfully for all of us, me included, three indicators that you do have a love of money in your heart. I'm just going to give you three. There's probably dozens. I don't know. I'm just going to give you three that I've dwelt on this last week. First, you're consumed in thought by the things of the world. Maybe you feel powerful, beautiful, confident when you're wearing certain clothes, which of course take money to get. Or you get more and more excited as you research a purchase. You spend hours and hours researching. And then when you buy it, you cannot wait until it, it arrives. You're checking UPS tracking labels or FedEx and USPS. And you just can't wait till it gets there. And if it arrives while you're at work, you're flying home from work and you open it up. And then weeks and months later, if you kind of stop to think about it, why aren't you as excited now as you were then and what you'll find if that love of money is in there that now you find a new object to begin researching and get excited about now am i describing any of us these are indicators that you have a love of money in your heart can't park in your garage because your attic and your shed and your basement are full of things You work 60 to 70 hours a week for that promotion. You dream of the increased salary and the better vacations and the security that it's going to bring in your retirement account. I mean, all of this, you just dream and you dream about it. These are all indicators that your heart is set on the things of this world, that there's a worship system going on. And the worship is not always God. Now, can we be brave as Christians? Let's just be courageous as a church honestly some of us most of us can i just say it nicely all of us okay that wasn't very nice me included we could be messed up people we have inordinate desires we desire the wrong thing or we desire the right thing in the wrong measure we just have wrong desires and that's not really unique to you that's for all of us we all tend to worship the wrong thing thinking that these God substitutes, or Calvin calls them idols, these idols that are manufactured from our hearts are going to make us happy. And how often are we going to be let down before you realize, and I realize, they really have no capacity to give you joy and satisfaction. But it doesn't stop the quest. It's been said, if you focus on material things, your getting will never catch up with your wanting. How true is that? I would write that down if I were you. Because there's a world of truth in that. If you focus on material things, your getting will never catch up with your wanting. Jesus said this in Luke 12, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The things of this world cannot produce life, which consists of joy. That's what real life is, joy and satisfaction and peace. Proverbs 11 says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf, even if you don't have a lot. Now, let me just tell you this, because we've, we've got wealthy friends, and there are people in our church that have a lot of good things I've got a lot of good things. It isn't wrong to possess great wealth or to have wonderful things unless that wealth and those things possess us. Do you see? If you serve a God substitute, you will become enslaved to that same God substitute. That's the message of the entire Bible. What is wrong is exalting. Wealth and possessions as the source of our joy, our happiness, and our security and peace. Now, interestingly, the American Psychological Association, the APA, shows money as one of the top sources of stress for American people. Now, I know that did not surprise you. I'm pretty sure you knew that. Did you know this, though? That the most clicked-on verse of Scripture in 2019, according to YouVersion Bible app, it's Philippians 4 6. Do not be anxious about anything. There's an anxiety problem in America. And listen, in my experience, it is rooted in Cornerstone as well. A friend of mine is actually a drug dealer. It's a true story. And I would ask him because he would come to me and I would ask him, Why are you doing this? I mean, you know it's wrong. Especially, why are you doing this since you have a beautiful family and you're in danger of losing them? He told me that his family immigrated to America when he was a very little boy. And he and his siblings, his family was so poor that they all slept, not mom and dad. They had a mattress on the floor, but they slept on the floor. And they had to stuff cotton into their ears So the roaches could not crawl inside their ear canals. He adamantly said, Pastor Tim, I'm never going to be that poor again. And so he sells drugs out of the trunk of his car. He might make a hundred grand a year, but the things of this world have no power to relieve that pervasive problem of his fear. He cannot outrun it through the things of this world. But these are all indicators that you might have a money problem in your heart. Number two, you feel you never have enough. Some very very insightful, very wise words were uttered by Larry the Cucumber and VeggieTales. As Bob the Tomato asked him, Larry, how much stuff do you need to make you happy? And Larry replied, I don't know. How much stuff is there? Now, if somebody were to ask you that very same question, how much stuff do you need in your life to make you happy? How much money in your account? How would you answer that question? I'll tell you how the Beatles probably would have answered it. In uh, November 1963, they recorded a cover of the song, Money, That's What I Want. Here's what their lyrics went like. The best things in life are free. But you can keep them for the birds and bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. That's what I want. Your lovin' gives me a thrill, but your lovin' don't pay my bills. Now give me money. That's what I want. A lot of money. That's what I want. They weren't really good at grammar. That's why kids stay in school. Four months later, now it's March 1964. Now they released their hit song, Can't Buy Me Love. And it went like this, I'll buy you a diamond ring, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. I'll get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Because I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. What happened in four months? Maybe they learned, I don't know, maybe they learned that money could not make them happy after all. But for those with a love of money in their hearts, there is a bottomless craving that this world system creates in us. You go through the checkout line. You get ads when you're on Google. They're constantly coming at us. They're bombarding us. You need this. Just listen to a car dealership ad on the radio. Pretty soon, all of a sudden, there's a craving. There's a hungering, growing lie that says, I need this. Not a want anymore. It's grown. I need this in order to be Happy. One way to define coveting is the quest to have what you want and what, what and want what you have not. The quest or the journey to have what you want and the want and to want what you have not. And it seems a nearly universal struggle to humanity, which, wa- which would justify, by the way, why 2,300 verses in the Bible... Talk about money. Can you believe that? 2,300 verses in the Bible. Talk about money. Jesus preaches on the subject of money and wealth and possession 15% of the time. Third of his parables, 13, I think, of of 29. 13, or uh, rather, uh, 15% of his parables are on this subject. He preaches more about this than he did heaven and hell combined a universal problem. Let me give you one more indicator that you might have a love of money that you're struggling with. You lack generosity. Now I'm just going to flat out ask you not counting your family for a moment, although generosity generosity certainly extends to your family, but let me ask you how generous have you been in the last months outside of your family? How hard is it for your spouse or your friend to get you to open up your hand to give to others the verb penny pincher i'm sure you've heard about that that first appeared as a noun in the 1400s actually in a different bit of a bit of a different form it was called a pinch penny and it was always meant negatively as a miser someone who pinches or holds to even a penny the smallest currency In production, refusing to let it go. And it is common to answer the accusation of being stingy. Somebody says to you, you're you're just a stingy person. What do you say? Almost everybody says, no, I'm frugal. Yet being frugal is no guarantee that a person is less addicted to money than the one who spends it out of control. Do you even know what frugality means? It means this, not spending less or saving more. That's not what frugality is. It's having less so you can offer others more. That's what a frugal person really is. That's true frugality. It's not spending less or saving more. That's how we take it. It's having less so you can give others more. Those who lack generosity, let's just be honest, because it's probably some of us, have betrayed that they have a love of money, and it has ensnared their hearts. God commands each Christian to keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Yet God never gives a command without promising his power to help us live it out. There is power available from God to root out covetousness from our hearts. And Hebrews chapter 13 is going to tell us what it is. So now, let me catch you up to where I'm going. I have completely disguised this as a Christmas message, right? Not one of you think, "This, this feels really Christmassy. It's going to from this point out. I mean, if you go to the doctor... And you tell them you've got something hard in your stomach and it's causing you pain. Do you want them just to whip out a scalpel and cut you open? I mean, honestly, don't you want there to be some x-rays and MRIs and some analyses first before they have to do surgery? That's kind of what we've been doing. We've been x-raying our hearts. Do we have a love of money? We've been letting the Bible do it through Hebrews 13 verse 5. Now we've got the prescription. Now you've got from the great physician, Jesus Christ, what you need to do if you've got the disease of a money love in your heart. And here we go. Number two, the confidence for contentment for every Christian. How do you be content? How do you get covetousness rooted out of your heart? Verse five, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, we're going to unpack that. Let me tell you, though, about a Hungarian Jew who went to his rabbi. He went to his rabbi, and he complained, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? And the rabbi says to him, take your goat into the room with you. The man was incredulous. But the rabbi insisted, do as I say and come back in a week. Well, he did. A week later, the man returned looking more distraught than ever before. We can't stand it, he told the rabbi. The goat is filthy. The rabbi said, well, go home and let the goat out to Quebec in a week. A week later, the man returned, and now he is radiant. He is smiling, and he exclaims, life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that there is no goat. It's just the nine of us. And what a powerful point that really is. Because contentment is almost purely your perspective. And this is exactly where Hebrews goes. It's going to agree with that statement and it's going to shape our perspective. It didn't, it seemed to take a long time rather. We're finally at this series namesake, Emmanuel, God with us. We don't see that name in these verses. But the cure for coveting. And the confidence for contentment is beautifully this. God is with us. Jesus, the Son of God, will never leave us or forsake us. Not ever. Look at what Hebrews says. Now read it again. Look at verse 5 and look at verse 6. This is a promise. This isn't just a helpful principle. This is actually a boast about God. He will never leave his child or forsake that child. And you're probably asking, I would be if I were sitting where you are, how is this going to help get this love of money out of my heart? The source of true contentment is not the accumulation of more money and more possessions, a bigger house, a nicer car, a better wardrobe, but none of those really can give you lasting joy, peace, and security. They all make a blip on the radar of your happiness. Let's just admit it. You get a new house, or a new car, rather, and you can't wait to drive it. You love that new smell and the way that it goes to the snow and the speed and the fact that you're probably not going to see a mechanic for a while. I mean, all these things give you a blip on the radar of happiness, but then all of a sudden they disappear off the radar. If a Christian wants contentment rather than covetousness in the heart, the answer is always the presence and the help of Jesus. So before you dismiss this saying, it won't work for you, let me tell you what the Bible says. Look at verse 5. First, God has promised to his children, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, let's go. You ready? I told you we're going to be a thinking church. We need to be a thinking church. Let's get our mind into gear. God is not off on a journey. He's not tending to things on the other side of the universe or some spider verse. If you're a Spider-Man fan like I am, that was kind of, that was funny, actually funnier than you're responding He's not preoccupied with tending to people in a natural disaster in India. He's not in heaven while we, like ants, are scurrying around down here on earth. He is Emmanuel. God is with us. He is nearer to us than our skin. Now, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic with that statement or trying to say something odd and wax eloquent i'm telling you he is nearer to you than your own skin why because jesus christian lives in your heart through the spirit of god he is soul deep he lives in the very core of who you are have you ever wondered now let's just take a really graphic example for a minute because i deal with this a lot with people particularly men except now it's becoming a problem for women as well let's just talk about pornography for a second Listen if you 've ever struggled with pornography and the Lord has given you freedom, you cannot help but have noticed that your desires have changed where used to where you used to have a stressful day and it was a trigger for you and all you could do is just imagine getting onto the internet or in magazine or whatever and finding your way into that unbelievably horribly illicit universe called pornography and fantasizing where all of a sudden you don't even really want to do that anymore and you kind of puzzle the head of your you scratch the the head of your soul going why don't i want to do this anymore when did this change happen that's because god always changes us from the inside out he gives us new desires he gives you the want to to do what he is asking you to do and he helps you to hate what he hates This is true for every sin. I know people that used to shoplift. They're appalled that they would steal. But it became an addictive art form to see how they could get away with stealing from a store. And now the very thought of it churns their stomach. It is distasteful to their soul. They could never imagine doing it again. Why? Because God has changed that person from the inside out. That's the way the gospel works. I'm going to tell you how the world works because I was in psychiatric work for five years. We always tried to change people from the outside in. And you can never penetrate below the layer of management and coping. They could learn to get out. They could play the system. They could learn to cope with their struggles. But every once in a while, it would come rearing right back and their life would be destroyed again. You just could not change the heart from the outside in. The gospel works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. And it won't be effective ever God is in your heart, Christian. Jesus lives there through the Spirit of God. And he is empowering you, and he is producing fruit in you, and he is giving a new heart and a new aptitude and a new appetite and new desires and new dreams and new expectations and new demands because you have a demand for holiness now and it's growing year by year as you walk with Christ. I visited a child in the hospital whose mother was there by his side and she took care of every single need. She would get up, get him a cup of ice, she would draw the blinds. she would reposition his pillow. She never left the side of her son Her entire focus was the care and the recovery of her son. Now, moms, you get this. You're way better at this than almost any father. There's a nurturing spirit that God has planted deep inside of you, whereas a lot of men would be there and then, oh, they got to go put wood in the wood stove. That would be me. Moms, they have the strength to stay there for hours and days and weeks. Well, listen, I'm going to tell you something. God has that same nurturing spirit with his children, but it's perfect. He will never leave your side, Christian. He knows every need you have before you even know it. And do you see him there? Do you see Jesus as the friend who sticks closer than a brother? That was about Jesus that Solomon was talking about in Proverbs 18. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And with a God like that... Why would our hearts even need to reach for more when he is there already giving you precisely what he knows you need for your joy and satisfaction. Now I'm going to say this as absolutely plainly, simply, bluntly, clearly as I can. So I hope you really really listen to this. And you may not disagree, you may not agree with it. Well, let's see if you agree or not. God knows exactly christian what you need in order to for you to be happy secure and full of peace if you don't need something god won't give it and if you need something god would give it if god hasn't given it to you you don't need it do you believe that that's a faith statement Can you trust me on that? Or can you go to the Bible and see it that God, James says, is the giver of all good things? God will never give his child anything that will not lead to their ultimate, happiest, joyful satisfaction. Can you believe that? Even in the midst of a trial, even in the midst of a cancer diagnosis? Even in the midst of losing a loved one, can you possibly even take something like that that is so horrific that we could ever imagine that we'd have to go through and lay it down at the feet of God and say, God, you are good in all things. If I needed something, you would give it. If I do not have it, you won't give it, and you don't need to give it. If it's not in my life, I don't need it for happiness. Can you say that? If you know Johnny Erickson's story, who at 17 I think dove into a lake and hit her head on the stump at the bottom of that lake, and was a quadriplegic. She actually died laying on the bottom of that lake, looking up at the sunlight streaming through the waters. They rescued her, resuscitated her. She's been a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down ever since. She once made a statement: "If I had the power." To change my life I wouldn't do it because God knew I needed this in order to love him the way that I do can you say that I mean that is powerful if your friend has a nicer car if your friends have a bigger f- home and if another friend goes on better vacations And they have more money and they have nicer clothes. Listen, if you needed it for your joy and satisfaction, God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills would give it to you. Can you trust that? The more you know your God is with you always, he will never leave you nor forsake you, and he loves you more than anybody ever will, now you begin to have the faith to truly believe what I'm saying. You see, Alistair Begg said, contentment is a child of faith. Covetousness is born of fear. Well, there is one more part of this, though. Chapter 13, verse 6 encourages us to trustingly believe that the Lord is my helper. First, we've got his presence. He will never leave us or forsake us. Now he's our helper. In the book of Hebrews, did you know that this was written to a group of Christians They had just gotten a punch in the gut of their faith. I mean, they were persecuted. They had their, look in the earlier part of this chapter, they had their homes taken away from them, chapter 10, earlier part of this chapter. They were beleaguered, they were discouraged, they were persecuted. A lot of them were considering converting back to Judaism because if they didn't go by the name of Christian, if they didn't claim to be a Christian, then life would go easier on them because Roman persecution was breaking out against the Christians. So a lot of them were going back to Judaism Look at verse 3. Some were in prison because of Christ. Others were being mistreated. Chapter 10, verse 34, like I mentioned. Their homes, some of their homes were taken away. Can you imagine this? You've got a home. Think of the home that you live in if you have a home. Can you imagine this? That somebody, the government, comes and takes your home from you? Why? Because you go to Cornerstone and the Evangelical Church and worship Jesus. Listen, that's not fantasy. This was happening. This is why the book of Hebrews is written. It was to keep people from losing their faith, to encourage the church on. They're asking, is Jesus really worth this suffering? So the writer encourages them, verse 6. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How can he say that? It's because the Lord is my helper. There's nobody more powerful than God. You see, don't you? The root of always wanting more of the world's possessions is a heart that doubts God's faithfulness to provide and protect. I'm going to say that again because it's so easy to not get that. The heart... That is clamoring after this world's possessions is a heart that doubts God's faithfulness to provide and protect. The disease of doubt drives the disorder of discontent. The disease of doubt drives the disorder of discontent. I'll give you one example from Scripture. It's Psalm 73. It's a, Asaph writes. He's the writer of that psalm. He, he writes early in the chapter. I was envious of the arrogant. Now, why? When I when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, I don't have hardly any money. I can't even live in a nice home. But all my friends, they don't go to church. They got all these vacations. Look at the cars they're driving and the clothes they're wearing, and they're talking about these vacations at church and or at uh, at work and. I don't get to go on any of them. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Nothing changed in his life until verse 17. He went into the sanctuary of God. Can I just put it in modern language? It's not really so much that he went to church, although that could be. It's that he dropped to his knees and he got in the word of God and he prayed. And his coveting, discontented heart was transformed from the inside out, and it became one of worship. And he writes this, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 was the answer. Emmanuel, God is with us. He visited this writer and all of a sudden he saw the power of God. And he saw the goodness of God. And it rooted covetousness, love of money, out of his heart. And it replaced it with worship and trust and peace. And security, which is why over 400 years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this Contentment is a soul's worship to subject itself to God. That's what it means to be content by being pleased with what God does. Now, here you go. You want to know? I gave you three indicators of the love of money. You want to know one indicator of a contented heart? Are you pleased with all that God has done in your life? all means all and that's all that i mean i mean all everything in your life that is from god are you pleased with that if you are you've got a contented heart if you're not you're not you don't have a contented heart and god wants to give that to you christian god is with us he is emmanuel he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother And if we need something for our happiness, he will surely provide it, for he possesses all riches. And what he gives to us is perfectly suited for our contentment. It is the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is with us always, never leaving us, that moves our hearts to boast with Paul in Philippians 4. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to take a minute and 10 seconds to tell you what you can do with this sermon. This Christmas season, why not take time to reflect and see if coveting and the love of money is in your heart? I mean, be faithful, be honest, be courageous. If it is, to any degree, come to the one who can give your soul true life and satisfaction, the only one who can give you peace. It is the presence of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who offers to you all of that peace, all that satisfaction. Now, you listen to this, please, I'm almost done. But he will only give it to you through a relationship. It's not objective. It's subjectively experiential. It must be given to you through a relationship. It is the presence of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who will give this to you, but only when you are in a relationship with him. Just merely thinking about Jesus when you see a manger scene hardly qualifies as a relationship. Come to him as your Lord and Savior who came to earth to die so that you could live and cry out to him and ask for salvation. And he will begin to give you, in increasing measure, a contented heart. Amen.